0: Call your attention now to the passage where the sermon is based in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 23. As you open your Bible, let me give you the title of the message, which is God's supremacy over evil and the cross of Christ. God's supremacy over evil and the cross of Christ. Isaiah 10, verse 5 through 23. Hear the word of our God in Isaiah 10, verses 5 to 23. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against godless nation I send him. And against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and cease plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, as his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy, to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Canaan like Carchemish? is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. Shall I not do shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I have removed the boundaries of peoples and plundered their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? And the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled, like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and all and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God, For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Let us pray. Father, please show us how great you are and how wonderful the cross is, for the forgiveness of our sins is also so that we may worship you even more. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. If God is good and powerful, why is there evil in the world? Why is there so much evil? I think, based on this text, text, I think we can answer this question. Why is there evil if God is powerful and good? And this message of Isaiah appears at the time of King Ahaz. You can find that in 2 Kings chapter 16. And this message of Isaiah here in chapter 10 appears for two reasons. First, the idolatry of Judah for sacrificing children and worshiping false gods and all in the way that God commanded them to worship him and because of unbelief unbelief instead of trusting in God to go to battle they wanted to depend on Assyria for their battles so Judah was having a problem with idolatry and unbelief depending and trusting in another nation, Assyria, for their victory. Therefore, God will punish Judah through Assyria itself, or himself. This is the historical context. And here Isaiah will teach us, you and I, this. This is the teaching. God's involvement with evil is always holy. But your or Mine or our involvement with evil is wicked. God's involvement with evil is always holy. But our involvement with evil is wicked. We will see this first with the causes of evil. Second, the evil underneath evil. And third, the effects of evil. So first, the causes of evil. You find this in verses 5 and 6. But before anything else, we need to find evil in these verses. It is in the end of verse 6. If you go there, it says this. To take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So the Assyrians will invade Judah to do that. And what do all this means? They are the most horrible terrifying things you can't imagine. Great evil is behind those words. Oppression, torture, hostility, killing of all sorts, children slaughtered, pregnant woman murdered, robbery, houses in flame. The the people were literally tread down like mud of the streets. The Assyrians were well known by their tortures and cruelty for the purpose of psychological warfare so that the other enemies in other nations would be fearful of them. Let me give you just one evidence of the cruelty that they exercise upon their enemies. They would fasten the enemies to the ground and pull out their tongues while they were alive. They would strip off the skins of their enemy and put the skins over the walls so that everybody could see. They would dismember and mutilate the victim alive. The enemy, having his hands and feet already been cut off, they were put on a stake to die slowly. Can you see it? Can you picture it, the evil behind those words? But how did this evil fall upon Judah? Did God merely allow this evil to take place? No, I think the text is very clear. He gives orders. He sends and gives orders so that this evil takes place. See the force of the parallelism in verse 6, part A. Against the godless nation, which is Judah, I send him, I send Assyria. And against the people of my wrath, which is Judah, I command him, I command Assyria to do that. You see the parallelism there? I think it's very clear. So God is behind the evil of Assyria against Judah. God is the ultimate and supreme cause of all things, even of evil things. As you can read in Psalm 135, 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleased that did He in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deep places. Or in Proverbs 16 says, The Lord hath made all things for Himself, even the wicked for the day of evil. then you say, is God the author of evil? Is that what you're saying, Pastor? Is He the author of sin? Not at all. Not at all. He is the ultimate cause of everything, including evil, but not its author. How come? How is that possible? And here's the application of this first point. The causes of evil. God is not the author of this sermon, for example. God is not the author of this sermon that you are hearing. I am. But God is the ultimate and supreme cause of this sermon, because without God I could not even be born. I could not even have my heart beaten. I could not even think anything, much less to write this sermon. Authorship is one kind of cause, but there are other kinds of causes. On one hand, the author of this sermon is the immediate cause of the sermon. God, on the other hand, is the ultimate cause of this sermon. As you find, for example, in the Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession of Faith, of primary causes and secondary causes. And the text here in the Isaiah is teaching us that God is the ultimate and primary causes of everything. But let us be clear. Does God commit sin? No, of course not. God is holy. That's why I'm saying the involvement of God with evil is always holy. God does not commit sin as much as He did not write this sermon. Although both evil and this sermon were decreed by Him. Look, the act or practice killing, murdering, were done by the Assyrians, not God. The Assyrians were the ones who murdered, tortured, and sinned, not God. But they were the instruments by which these actions were done. See verse 5 with me. It says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. See it? Assyria is the rod of God. The staff in their hands is my fury. So the Assyrians are tools in the hands of God. It's so clear in in the text. So clear. So God is the primary cause, the ultimate cause of everything. And uses secondary causes like you and me and nations and angels and demons and creation. for his his ultimate will and decree. Let me quote here Augustine and Calvin. I think they give a good illustration to how to understand this. Uh, Calvin quoting Augustine says, And from where, I ask, comes the bad smell of a carcass, of a dead body, which has been petrified and then open on open air, and laid under the heat of the sun. And then he says this, It is visible to all that is stirred up by the sun's rays. So the bad smell, it is caused by the rays of the sun. Yet, he says, no person on this account says that the rays stink. Only the dead body. In the similar way, it, with, it is with history. The ultimate cause is God, but the bad smell of our sins, it's only because of us. This is why God's involvement with evil is always holy. And when you read a text like this, and you find a lot of them in Scripture, you see that our responsibility is not to invent unwarranted excuses on behalf of God and try to justify Him before men. But our appropriate response, when you read this, the cause of evil and the ultimate cause is God, and we are the secondary cause, our response is to be humbled before Him. That He is the Creator and we are creatures. That who are we to question God as we learn in Romans 9? He does everything He wants because He is, by definition, is God. And we are mere creatures in His hands. And the only appropriate response is not to try to justify God when the Bible doesn't, but to humble ourselves to be under His sovereignty and to worship Him. So God's involvement with evil is always holy. But our involvement with evil is wicked. First, you saw this, the causes of evil in the text. Second, the evil underneath evil, verses 7 through 15. Now this is very important. And I think the whole point is in application for our lives. The Assyrians did not think God was behind the scene. See in verse 7. They didn't think that God was doing everything. They thought they were, they were the ones doing it. Verse five, six, 7, I mean. Verse 7 says, But he does not so intend. The Assyrians do not so intend. And his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. You see there? Assyria and God had different motivations. But they came together in the same action. What was the Assyrians' motivation? What was it that was underneath all evil that Assyria practiced? Now listen to this. And it's a lesson for all of us. Pride. Pride was behind all the evil of Assyria, see verse twelve says this: when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion by using Assyria and on Jerusalem, He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. You see do you see the evil underneath evil? It was pride, as Augustine. One said also, "Pride is not a sin among many, but is a sin underneath all the other sins. It's like a mother pregnant with all other sins. That's what pride is." But let's give a better definition. What is pride? Pride is a self-centeredness, self-absorption, self-worship. It is the constant passion. About yourself, about myself. See if that is not true about Assyria. You see exactly that in the description of Assyria. In verse see the pronouns, the possessive pronouns and other pronouns that the Assyria uses for himself. Verse 10, pay attention to the emphasis. "My hand will do it." Verse 11. Shall I not? I have done verse 13 by the strength by the strength of my hand I have done it I am prudent I have removed I have put down verse 14 my hand hath found have I gathered you see the emphasis there isn't a meism I did it I am wise I can do it so the Assyria is like a mirror to us this morning. You and I act as if you and I are the center of the universe, even without thinking. If you don't believe me, think about this. If I, if I said to you that uh, I had your graduation picture or some important picture, picture that you took, long time ago, with your family or with your school class, in your graduation, remember that picture. And you haven't seen that picture for a long time, for a long time, and it's here with me. And I'm going to show you. Here's the picture that you haven't seen of your graduation. Now, let me ask you this. Guess who you would look for in the picture first? Would it be somebody else or yourself? You see, in this simple illustration, I don't think there will be anyone here. I will look the, uh, I will look for John or or Peter. No, you look for yourself. We are full of yourself. We're always thinking about us. Self-centeredness. It's amazing. But how violent is pride? It is very violent. It is deadly. It destroys people. It makes you want to destroy others, like Assyria wanted in verses nine through eleven. You and I want to be great. You want to be respected. We want to be. You want to receive recognition over others. You want to receive glory. uh, We have the tendency to compare ourselves with others all the time, to overcome them on the basis of power, money, and wisdom, which is the case here of Assyria. Power, money, and wisdom. As C.S. Lewis once said this about pride. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, but only out of having more of it than the next person. You may think you are proud of being successful, intelligent, or good-looking, but you are not. Because when you are surrounded by other people with as much or more success, intelligence, or looks, you lose all pleasure in them. Lust may actually drive you to sleep with a beautiful woman because you want her. Pride, however, drives you to sleep with a beautiful woman just to prove to everyone, including you, that you can do it and do it over all others. A proud man gets no real pleasure from the woman. It is all about Him. That's what pride is. That's the problem in our hearts. Now I want you to picture it. And that is a kind of superiority kind of pride. You feel superior to others, to destroy others. But there is the inferiority kind of pride that makes you want to destroy yourself. Because you compare yourself with others, like a slave wants to be a king, and you know that they are better than you, and you start to look down on yourself. You can't stand yourself. It is just like the other type of pride. It's focusing on yourself. It is just a different circumstance. As Pastor Tim Keller once said, pride is behind all sin, especially the social evils, racism, injustice, imperialism, all come from class pride, racial pride, overweening national pride. Yeah, all our sins are tainted by pride. But amazingly, God destroyed a serious pride with one One verse, verse 15. Look at this. Just one verse, he destroys Assyria's pride. God says, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it? Or as if a staff should lift him who is no wood? God is saying, Assyria, you are just a tool in my hand. God is the center. Therefore, the antidote for your pride, for my pride, is to think about yourself less. It's not to think less of yourself, because to think less of yourself, it's a type of pride. But it's to think about yourself less. And think more about God. And submit all your thinking to Him. Because that's reality. He is the center of the universe. He is the sun. Where will cir- where we we'll circle around him? And that's the antidote to do it. It's not exactly self self-forget- self forgetfulness, but it is divine remembrance and put God in the center of yourself. His glory is your glory. His will is your will. His future is your future. His joy is your joy. Your boast is in Him and in who He is. Your pride, your boast is your God. Not you, not me. But lastly, you see, that's why God's involvement with evil is always holy. But your and my involvement with evil is always wicked because there's pride behind it, underneath it. But thirdly and lastly, you have to see this, the effects of evil. That God's involvement with evil is always holy. But our involvement with evil is always wicked. Thirdly, you have to see the effects of evil. Verses 16 to 34. If on one hand the Assyria's motivation was pride, what about God's motivation? What was behind God's motivation everything? First thing, to produce justice over Assyria by destroying her, his pride. Verse 16, he will destroy Assyria's power. Verses 17 through 19, he will destroy Assyria's riches. In verse 15, he destroys Assyria's wisdom. He crushed Wisdom, power, and riches of Assyria there were the basis of his pride. That's why he brought everything that he brought here of the evil. But Also, second, it was to produce faith. Verse 20, produce faith in his people. Verse 20 says this, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The, the word here, the verb "lean" is to have faith. The effects of a serious attack is to push Israel back to trust in, in Yahweh and not in Assyria anymore. He's using Assyria and all the evil to produce faith. In Judah. And thirdly, to produce repentance. In verses 21 and 22, it says that the remnant will return to God. A 180 degree change to produce repentance in his people. God uses the pride of Assyria to destroy the pride of Judah. Or, in other words, that's a very good sentence for you to remember. With sin, God destroys sin. With the sin of Assyria, God destroys the sin of Judah. And also to produce grace, in verses 20, 21, and 22, you have the little word remnant. Through the evil of Assyria against Judah, God will show the ones who are truly His the elect, the remnant, the ones who really, truly love Him and trust in Him and come to Him to show grace by showing the true remnant of Judah. Glorious. This is why God's involvement with evil is holy, but your involvement with evil is wicked. And here is one of the answers. Why? If God is powerful and good, why is there evil in the world? Many will conclude that that's why the Christian God doesn't exist. But based on what we see here in Isaiah, that's not the true conclusion. We conclude that the Christian God will eventually and inevitably deal with evil. Yes, we say that God is all powerful and all good and loving. And there is evil in the world. And the only conclusion as Christian that we have is not that God does not exist. It's that He will eventually end. Inevitably, He will deal with evil once and for all. But then you can respond saying, this is not fair. God determines evil and then punishes it. Maybe you have that question in your mind. And I want to conclude with that question. If Assyria is simply a tool in God's hand, if Assyria is just an instrument in God's hand, just like in an axe, someone is cutting a tree with an axe, how can God blame Assyria if Assyria is just a tool in his hand? How can God make Assyria responsible? Can men blame the tool he's using? If you see someone with a gun in his hand and killing someone with a gun and say, now the, the gun is responsible for the, the killing, you would say, that guy is out of his mind. The gun was just a tool in his hand. And he asks, how can God blame the tool that he's using? And then that's why many people would come to the conclusion that God is responsible for all evil in the world. He should be responsible for it. And I want to conclude with this truth. There is a play written by a German pastor called The Sign of Jonah. In the context of that play is the World War II where the people of the earth are looking for the responsible people for the killing of millions of Jews. And they go to the German people and say, you are the guys who killed millions in the Holocaust. And they say, no, we are not responsible. Go to the army. And they went to the soldiers and say, you are the ones who are responsible for the Holocaust. They say, no, we are, we are just receiving orders. Go to our superiors. And you know how did they end? To find the one who is responsible for it? They say this in the play. God is guilty. That is true, true, true. I speak for all the mothers of the 20th century. I speak in the name of all the innocent, innocent children who died in the last two wars. I speak in the name of all the children who at the age where they should be playing on sunny playgrounds had to face the horrors of their times. I speak in the name of children who died of hunger and sickness. I ask, where was the God we were taught to call Father? He has failed, just as this court must fail, because the children aren't here to accuse Him with their emaciated, decayed bodies and with eyes hollow from hunger and terror. Can you see them? Can you ever read your memory of that image? Then join me in my cry. God is guilty. Guilty. Isn't it the tendency of our prideful heart to do that? But Let me ask you this. Is this wrong? To blame God, it is, is it outrageous? Is it blasphemy to blame God and want to punish Him, to put Him on trial? Is this blasphemy, I ask you? As creatures to do with the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth? It is, it is blasphemy. It is outrageous. It is unthinkable. Who are we? But then the play continues. They didn't want a verdict after saying that God is guilty. And they say this. Here's a verdict. After saying that God is guilty and should be punished. He must wear the the crown of thorns. And from a place of of high honor, he must be thrust into damnation. God shall become, now pay attention to this as we go to the Lord's Supper. God shall become a human being and a wanderer on the earth, deprived of his rights, homeless, hungry, thirsty, and in constant fear of death. He shall be born to a woman somewhere along a country road, and the moans of other poor creatures shall ring his ears day and night. He shall be surrounded by the feeble, the sick, the filthy, by people bearing marks of leprosy. Rotting corpses shall bar his path. He shall know what it means to die. He himself shall die, and when at last he dies, he shall be disgraced and ridiculed. Trinity URC Church. God has done death. Do you realize it? The cross is the answer. The blasphemy. When you see all the evil in the world. All the terrible things that we see. War. All the sickness. All the sins. All of the terrifying things that we cannot even fathom. Even when we see in the scriptures that it is, God is sovereign. God controlling, governing everything. And we should never blame him for things like that. But even if we do that because of our prideful heart, sinful heart, and we want to blame him and condemn him and punish him, the outrageous things of of our hearts, he has done it on the cross. You are about not to listen to this truth, but to see it on the, the bread and to see it the wine the the blasphemy the unthinkable he did the cross is the answer how much more do you want what else do you want even the unthinkable God did for you and for me he punished himself in Jesus Christ he was judged in incarnate God what else do you want I ask you The cross is the last response to evil. Actually, it's the best response to evil. Because on the cross, the causes of evil are there. Isn't it in Acts 2 and Acts 4? Through the wicked hands, God killed His Son. On the cross, you see the evil underneath evil. It was because of pride that they took Jesus to the cross. And our pride took Him there. And on the cross, you see the effects Through evil, you see the justice of God by punishing Jesus for us. The judgment that we deserved, he took for us. So that God be the just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus Christ. It is through the cross that we see our repentance and faith and grace. It is on the cross that you see God already giving and giving a final blow on evil that will be consummated in the new heaven and the earth. And I'll go home with this truth. If God through the worst evil, which is the cross, there is no evil worse than that. Because it was the only innocent man who died on that cross. It was the worst evil of all, which is the cross. God bring His best his reconciliation with us. If from the horrendous evil, the best and the most extraordinary love was shown, then what can he do with your suffering you are going through right now, Christian? If from the worst, he, tro- he brought the best. Can you think what he can do through your suffering right now? Isn't it amazing how God did? That is why Paul once said, For the preaching of the cross is to, them that perish, uh, is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And he asked, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer, the debater of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Yes, He has. to the cross of Christ. What an amazing, what an amazing message. What an amazing gospel we have. And we get, we have the privilege, not only to listen to it, but to participate visibly with the bread and the wine. All the evil that we might experience. The cross is the ultimate answer. And to put our trust in God. That no matter what happens. He has the final answer. And the best answer. That through the most. The worst evil of this world. He brought the best love that we can think of. What a God we have. What else do you want? What else? Let us pray. Father, have mercy on us. Help us to glorify your name. That you determine the cross. Yes, you decree the cross as we read in Acts 2 and 4. And through wicked hands, you brought the most amazing grace and love and mercy for our sinners. Help us to celebrate this truth this morning so that all the glory, all the honor may be to you. And all our pride and boast be only in you, as Paul says, a way that I may boast in anything except on the cross of Jesus Christ. Help us to do this. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.